Today we're going to talk about something that um, is con- controversial and has been controversial for not for the last 10 years or 20 years or 50 years or 100 years, but for the last 2,000 years. And um, it's been something that has been hard for God's people to, um, or it's been something that has been debated for a long time. This morning, my desire is to be clear um, and unambiguous about what I think the Bible says. Because I think the Bible is clear and unambiguous about this. But I also want to be careful and um, realizing that there's uh, could be disagreement. And my desire is to be pastoral and, 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 sh- and shepherd uh, you this morning as we talk about this. And so I appeal to you to listen with a uh, humble heart, and certainly I desire for you to embrace uh, what I preach today. But I want you to have your Bibles open or, or, or have your bulletin. It's going to be important that you um, are look, have your nose in the scriptures as we look at this today. Um, and I just want to say up front, I, I am perfectly happy to, uh, to speak with, with you after church or some other time, realizing that questions may arise from our time this morning. But I was, I was encouraged yesterday by a, a verse that we've all heard before. And uh, it's when Jesus is talking to uh, the Jewish people and, and he says, um, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So truth always sets us free. And so I'm convinced that this is for our good. And uh, so enough suspense, right? What are we talking about today? Uh, I want to I look at, from our passage, from these seven verses, 1 Peter 2, 6 to 10, the twin truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, both in those who reject Christ and those who receive Christ. Because of our severe limitations, we oftentimes lean really hard and probably too hard in one direction or the other. Either God is absolutely sovereign and chooses who will be saved and who will not, or we are morally responsible human beings and our choices are real and not coerced. And I would say that this is absolutely a paradox. It's, it's not a contradiction, but it may appear to be one because of our limitations, and we do have severe limitations. God has no limits. We have all kinds of limits. Where we to, uh, see two things in the Bible that seem to be at odds, I, wanna, I want us to, to know that we are not forced to choose one or the other. And I would even say we don't have the right to choose one or the other. But we must and we are required to believe both. And so these two truths, God is absolutely sovereign and our, we are absolutely responsible before God for our decisions and our choices and whether we receive Christ or not, all human beings are, they are not at odds, though they may appear to be so. And so um, here's, here's what I want to do. Um, what I want to do is I, I want to look at two responses to Jesus Christ in our passage, and then show you from our passage, not from somewhere else, I don't want to try to pull something in from somewhere else, but from our text, 
That God is sovereign over it. And then at the end, I want to help us, I want to help you see that this is an important and really for, for the believer, a sweet, sweet truth. Um, listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about these twin truths. He was asked a question by a friend who said, how do you reconcile God's divine, divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Listen to his response. It's terrific. And I want, hopefully we can respond this way as well. Maybe not today, but, but sometime. I never have to reconcile friends, he said. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile that what God has joined together. Where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. Isn't that interesting? I mean, Spurgeon was a genius. A lot smarter than me. Probably smarter than anyone in this, anyone in this room. He's called the Prince of Preachers. He was a genius. He said, I don't, I don't know and I don't want to know. And he says, they do not puzzle me. Listen to this. This is so important. Since I have given up my mind to believe them both. And I know in my own uh, journey in faith with Christ, that has been, uh, that has been a process, a, mass, a big process. Uh, so so um, th- there's, there's incredible patience as we, as we look at this and see what God has to say and ask God to help us understand and just believe them both, though we don't know how they meet. So here, again, two responses to Jesus. And how God is sovereign in both of them from our passage. So, we see in our text that Jesus is called the cornerstone, right? Verse 6, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan in history, period, right? We're just saying in Christ alone, in Jesus alone, he is the cornerstone. He's what holds everything together. He is the firm foundation, and there is no other. And of course, we know, we know from our own lives and from just living in this world that there are those who reject that, and there are those who accept it. Let's first look at what our text says about those who reject it. Verses 7, the second part, to the first part of verse 8 says this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. They do not, so it says that they do not believe, they reject the cornerstone, they stumble over the stone, they are offended, and they disobey the word. I think these are different ways of saying largely the same thing, right? They, they do not believe in Christ as the cornerstone, as the only way to God. There are those who reject the cornerstone, there are those who stumble over him. They stumble over this idea that Christ can be the only way to God. Have you ever talked to someone who who told you that's arrogant to say that? 
People stumble over that. This idea that Jesus is the only way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. So Paul knew this, right? He preached Jesus. He preached Christ crucified. And for some, it was a major stumbling block. For the Jewish people, a crucified Savior. They thought someone who hung on a tree was cursed. So how could he be the Savior? And of course, we know that Jesus bore the curse for us. For the Gentiles or the Greeks, it was utter foolishness that God would become a human being and live as a poor man. That seems utterly foolish. But Paul says, but to those who are being saved, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There are those who are offended at Christ and at what he requires. Because Jesus requires total belief and complete surrender or complete allegiance to him. And people are offended at that. Jesus says outrageous things like if you love your husband or wife or your children or brothers or or sister more than me, you're not worthy of me. And people are offended at that. And all of us, I think at one time, are like, ooh, that sounds hard. And it says there are those who disobey the word. Now, I think when it says they disobey the word, I I think it's talking about disobeying the the message of Christ or the the word about Jesus, the gospel. The gospel message is, is brought forth about Christ and the command is to repent and believe. And to disobey that is to not repent and believe. So they disobey the word. Now, it has always been this way. When Christ was born, he was, there was an attempt to kill him. As Christ lived, there were those that rejected him. Even, even when it seemed like there were large crowds, oftentimes it was just a superficial faith. I think of John chapter, John chapter 6, how it says that there were lots of people. He fed the, the multitudes. And then, of course, Jesus spoke a message that people found offensive, and all of them left except for the 12 disciples. So it's always been this way. Right after his resurrection, or after his resurrection and then his ascension, people rejected him. They rejected the message. Of course, I'm not saying everyone, because the gospel has spread throughout the world, but there have always been those who have rejected Christ on down to this day. And Peter makes it very clear that those rejecting Christ really are rejecting him. They are rejecting him. They are offended. They stumble over the stumbling stone. They are responsible for doing it. They are moral creatures rejecting Christ. In other words, nobody's rejecting Jesus who doesn't want to reject Jesus. And it's interesting how Peter's addressing these embattled, beleaguered Christians in the midst of a culture that seems to be overwhelmingly rejecting Jesus. They're living in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, which is probably the hottest place for persecution at this time. And the persecution is hot toward Christians because of their commitment to Christ. 
So he's addressing these Christians in the midst of this culture where there's widespread rejection of the Christ you love. But we also see in our passage, in the midst of rejection of Jesus for individuals, and even when there's widespread rejection of Christ, we see that God is sovereign over the unbelief of those who reject Jesus. What I've said, what I've said so far about those who reject Christ is that's not controversial. We know that, right? People are offended at Jesus. They reject him. They don't believe in him. But this is. And so I, I want you to look at these verses and let's see if it says what I, I think it does say. God is sovereign over the unbelief of those who reject Christ. The second part of verse 8 says this. They stumble... Because of their disobedience, as they were destined to. Have you ever read through the Bible? This is one of those places where I've done this. Have you ever read through the Bible and you're like, you read something and, and you kind of do a double take like, oh my God, did that really say that? Oh, I can't say that. And you just keep going on. <laughs> this is one of those places. Like, oh, huh? Let me read that again. They stumble because of their disobedience as they were destined to. The NIV says something, I mean, basically the same thing. I mean, a little different wording. They stumble because they disobey the word, which also they were destined for, or for which they were also destined. So it seems to say that God has destined some to stumble and to disobey. Now, some have suggested that stumble here in this verse, verse 8, the second part of verse 8, the last part of verse 8, that the word stumble or the stumbling has to do with God's action of appointing human beings to stumbling because of their disobedience or because they disobey, because they don't believe in Christ, then he gives them over to that and, and they are given over to eternal destruction. They, they stumble eternally. There are a few reasons why I don't think we can follow that route. And here's where I want you to look at this with me. Well, the first, the fir- the first is a more literal translation of this, of this phrase would be this. They stumble at the word being disobedient to which also they were appointed. So the idea of disobedience is descriptive of stumbling. It's describing the stumbling. Second, the second reason why I think, I don't think we can go that route is the same word stumble is paralleled paralleled with offense in verse 8 when it says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Stumbling and offense, to, be, to stumble over Christ and to be offended at him, are parallels. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And there's one other clue here for why I believe it is saying that God is sovereign over those even who reject Jesus. And it is when Peter quotes Psalm 118, when he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, Peter's heard this before. I mean, of course, he probably read it in Jewish scriptures. So he's heard it read before, perhaps in the temple. But he's actually heard this verse taught on before by the Lord Jesus himself. 
In, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is, is teaching a parable to a group of, um, uh, of Jewish relig- leaders, Jewish leaders and teachers, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And he, he, he teaches them or t- tells them the parable of the, ta- uh, the, parable of the, the tenants. Because remember that parable? It's of a master who planted a vineyard and then he had some tenants come and lease the vineyard from him and he sent his servants to the vineyard to check on it and probably to collect money. And the servant would come and they beat him up and sent him away empty-handed. Another servant was sent, or would come, they beat him up, let, sent him away empty-handed. Another servant came and they killed him. And then the master says, I know what I'll do, I'll send my son. Certainly they will respect him. The son is sent. They murder him. <clears throat> and Jesus asks his audience, he says, what will this master do? And one of, one of the people listening says, he will go and he will kill, all, he, will, he will destroy all those wicked tenants. And Jesus said this, have you never heard? Have you never read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he continues with what's written in Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing, and it is precious in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing, and it is precious or marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone, Jesus, brothers and sisters, had to be rejected. For you and I to be saved, for anyone to be saved, he had to be, this was part of God's, plan it was always part of God's plan that Christ would come into the world and be rejected and be murdered listen to what acts 4 verses 27 and 28 says this is the disciples they gather together the believers in Christ after John and Peter had been released if you have a bible open to acts 4 with me um, so you can see it there as they were, after they were released from the Jewish religious leaders and told, you do not preach Christ anymore. It says they went back to their friends, they gathered together, and they had a prayer meeting. And here's what they prayed. They, out of Psalm chapter 2 first, they say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27, you have to see this. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your servants, excuse me, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. Pontius Pilate and Herod plotted together. And the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers carried out, or the Jewish leaders plotted together, the Roman soldiers carried out this vicious murder of Christ. I mean, horrific, but it says they did whatever God's hand and, pre, and plan had predestined to take place. Why does Peter say this to his listeners? 
Is he trying to stir up controversy in the church? No. For Peter's listeners, this was meant to be a deep encouragement to them. Peter wants them to know that those who reject Jesus as the cornerstone and persecute them because of their commitment to Christ will not thwart God's purposes. They will not destroy the church. That's what, he's, that's what he wants to encourage them with. They will not defeat God, but rather they will unwittingly serve God's purposes. They may think they're overthrowing God. I mean, imagine, imagine the Jewish people once Christ, once he breathed his last, they, they probably breathed a sigh of relief. Oh my goodness, he's, he's finally dead. Now we can go on with business as usual. But they were serving God's purposes for Jesus had to die for our salvation. So those who reject Christ do willingly reject him. They willingly reject him. And I think we see in our passage, God is sovereign over it. Do we see that there? Like Spurgeon, can we say, I've given up my mind to believe them both. If you're like me, I like everything in the Bible to fit together like a nice 100-piece puzzle. 100-piece puzzle, that's that's about as big a puzzle as I can do. And I need Silas's help with it. But I like everything to fit together. I like, and if, and if there's a missing piece, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble. And well, if, there, if, if there's three missing pieces, I just, I don't like that. Okay, we, we don't like that. We like everything to fit together nicely like a hundred piece puzzle. And, and, and because we have limitations, because we're finite, this just doesn't for us. <clears throat> and that's okay. Here's what I think we can affirm and have to affirm. And I just want to go through some things. God rules over sinful human beings and he does not sin in doing so. I, I, I think if you read, from, just as you read from Genesis to Revelation, I think you, you just see that over and over again. That God never sins. Okay, we would all heartily affirm that. But I think we also see that God, in, in a providential way, is ruling over Sinful people. We also need to affirm that God did plan from the beginning that his son would be rejected and betrayed and unjustly killed by Herod Pontius Pilate, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, and the Gentile and the Romans. We also need to affirm, and I want you to hear this so clearly, because I believe this with all of my heart. Nobody who wants to be saved will be prevented from coming to Christ. They won't be prevented. God is not pushing people away from Jesus. Those who want to come to Christ can come to him. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. All who come to him, all who want to come to him will not be cast aside. Period. We also need to affirm affirm this. Everyone who disbelieves in Christ is morally responsible for his or her unbelief because they reject him willingly based on the knowledge that they have. We also need to 
affirm this. We are all born enslaved to sin. Every human being is, right? We are born dead in sins. So we are born enslaved to sin and undeserving of salvation. And finally, I think God's judgment is always right. God said to Abraham regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I think, God, I think God is speaking to Abraham. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? And he always does. But we don't just see those who believe here, or those who reject Jesus here. We also see wonderfully those who believe in Christ. Let's read verses 6 and the first part of 7. It says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter says, So the honor is for you who believe. Do you believe in Christ? You will never be put to shame. You will be eternally honored in in Christ. There is honor for you. There is no shame for you. You will never be embarrassed that you trusted in Jesus. <laughs> have, you ever, like, have you ever, like, you know, taken the advice of some expert, maybe on infomercial or on TV or something, and, you know, maybe you bought a stock. I, I don't know. You, you took someone's advice, and afterwards you're like, if other people knew it, you'd be embarrassed that they knew it. Because they'd say, what are you thinking? (laughs) You will never be embarrassed. You will never be put to shame that you believed in Christ. I love how it says, the honor is for you. Who? For who? For you who believe. So while others stumble over Christ, you, if you believe in him, you find him to be a solid rock, the only solid rock. You don't stumble over him. You stand on him. And not on the shifting sand all around us. While others reject Jesus, you love him. When we sing here on Sundays, your heart is stirred in love for Jesus Christ. While others are offended at the claims and demands of Jesus, you are in all the way with him. You might say, Lord, help me. We don't do it perfectly by no means, but we, we, say, we say, Lord, help me. Help me obey all that you say. Help me to follow you all the way. And let's, face, let's, let's say this absolutely clearly. Peter is totally clear here. If you believed in Christ, you really did believe in him. Someone else didn't believe in him for you. God didn't do it for you. You believed in him. You trusted in Christ. You put your faith in him. And the honor is for you who believe. But that's not all this passage says. It also says that God is sovereign even over our believing this, this guy that was around a long time ago named St. Augustine. He lived like in the 4th century. And he knew the controversy of this truth. 
He said something regarding this. He said, we are chosen not because we believe, but chosen in order to believe. We are chosen not because we believe, but we are chosen rather in order to believe. So God is sovereign in the salvation of those who believe in Christ. So right after Peter says those who reject Christ were destined to that, he says this, verse 9. And we love these verses. I mean, you probably heard these before. He says the first two words. Just look at the first two words. But... You. He says there are those who reject Jesus. They reject him. They stumble. They're offended. They don't believe. They disobey. And he says, but you. But you. They were destined for that, but you. He's contrasting what others were appointed to to what you are appointed to. But you. Who is the you? It's you who believe. It's you who have faith in Christ now. It's you. You, he says, are a chosen race. A chosen race. A brand new race of people born by the Spirit of God. A brand new race of people from every nation, tribe, and language, and people, and tongue. Right? This is what believers are. We're from all across every people group, every, every race. We are a new race. Chosen by God, born again by the Spirit. <clears throat> the word chosen here is the same Greek word that's used in chapter 1, verse 1, when Peter addresses or tells us who he's addressing in his letter. Listen to uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He says, to those, he, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles or chosen exiles, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, chosen exiles, elect exiles. Peter goes on to say, you are not only a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. You are a people who have been called out of darkness. You are a people who have been brought into marvelous light. Marvelous light. And verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, once you were like this nomadic group of people out in the wasteland of your sin, all of us, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, and all of us at one time were there, we had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved brothers and sisters, you were appointed for mercy. Because all of us are 
radic- we come into this world radically corrupt by sin, right? Because of Adam, because of Adam's sin. We are all born in sin. God never, ever, ever gives anyone injustice. Never. God never treats anyone unfairly. He gives justice to some, and he gives mercy to others. And if you believe in Christ, we ought to be dumbfounded that we once had not received mercy, and now we have. This is a glorious Glorious truth. There's a lot of similarities between verses 9 and 10 and what Moses says to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. Let me turn there and read. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7, where he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So he says, you are a holy people, right? We are a holy nation in Christ. He says, you are chosen to be a people. So we've been chosen, right? We're a chosen race. And he says, right, Moses said to Israel, you are his treasured possession. And Peter here says, we are a people for God's own treasured possession. Verse 7 says this, Deuteronomy 7, 7, it says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why did God choose Israel and why does God choose people to be believers in Christ? It's, he didn't choose Israel because they were the largest or the, the, the biggest and baddest nation in the world. They weren't. They were just this little group of people. I once, once heard Christopher Hitchens, um, an atheist who's now dead, he says, I'm trying to just blast Christian faith. He says, why would God speak to a bunch of illiterate people in the Middle East? Why wouldn't he reveal himself to people in China, you know, and 400 BC or whatever. This sophisticated group of people. Well, Deuteronomy 7 tells us God wasn't looking for a big and mighty and impressive group of people. But then it says this. It's like God tells him, I loved you, or I I loved you and chose you because I love you. Just scratch your heads for a second, right? I love you because I love you. God God does not look for anything in, he didn't look for anything in Israel. He doesn't look for anything impressive in us. He doesn't look down the corridors of time and say, man, that guy's so talented, I need to use his talents for my kingdom. He doesn't look down the corridors of time and say, I know that that person is going to be an amazing worshiper and so I'm going to, I, need them, I want them on my team. He, he, he choo- we don't, it's, it's bound up in God's free grace and mercy why he chooses to put his affection on us. We don't boast in ourselves or anything in us, but we 
as Peter says, proclaim the excellencies of God and of Christ in the power of the Spirit. This truth of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. I mean, if you believe in Christ, I don't want you to hear today that you didn't really believe in him. You did. These two twin truths, well, quite frankly, the sovereignty of God coupled with our responsibility sometimes seems like a bitter pill to swallow. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be for the believer. It's meant to be a sweet pill. It's meant to be a sweet, incredible truth for us. So I want to, I want to spend just our remaining time telling you or, or sharing with you why I believe this, this truth matters for us as Christians. This is not... This is not like, let's, let's uh, you know, Christians in the ivory tower kind of debating on some obscure things. This is, this is meant to be a massive bulwark for us. So I have seven reasons why this truth is something we should rejoice in. First, it gives us a greater sense of weight in our worship a greater sense of weight in our worship. We often, for good reason, are drawn to God's accessibility. Right? We, we sing about, we talk about, we love the idea, I mean, the, the things that, that make God feel like a, a, a daddy we can snuggle up close to. And amen to that. But we also need to be reminded and we also need to be exposed to the scripture, because it's not like he's either or, right? I mean, he is our father. He, we, we can get close to, we can snuggle up close to him. He's gracious. But we also need the truths that remind us that God is God and we are not. Remember that old Stephen Curtis Chapman song from years ago? God is God and we are not. Um, and this is good for our worship, This truth helps us to have a weightiness in our worship, perhaps unlike any other truth, that God is sovereign. And that God is sovereign even in our salvation. Number two, second reason why we should rejoice in this is it gives us incredible confidence in life. Remember our our, our memory passage for this month says, if you follow what it says from verse 28 to verse 31, it's amazing. For those, or, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for the good, or for their good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for, or because, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And then verse 31, we love this verse. What shall we say then, brothers? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If if God chose us before the foundation of the world, 
predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then in time, he called us to himself. We put faith in him. He justified us. And Paul speaks in the past term tense, he's glorified us. Which is something that will still happen in the future. But it's so sure that it will happen. And Paul says, it's a done deal. What shall we say then? If God is really for us in this way, who or what can successfully be against us? The answer is clear. Nothing. Nothing. At all. This gives us an incredible confidence in life. Third reason why we should rejoice in this truth and see it as something to rejoice in is it gives us joy in the free grace of God. I mean, it it can, and I pray that it will, give us joy in the free grace of God. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. And then it says this, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious, like Paul just erupts in praise of God's glorious grace. Now, don't, don't get offended at this, but let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. Don't nod anything. When was the last time you just were ecstatic? I mean, just fell to your knees in joy at God's grace toward you. If you are in Christ, he's chose, he chose you before the foundation of the world. That's massive. It's huge. There's a song, Thy Mercy, My God. I love the first lines of the song. It says, Thy Mercy, My God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Fourth reason why we should rejoice in this truth is that it gives us courage and obedience. It gives us courage and obedience. Jesus, talking to his disciples, he says, don't fear, don't fear those, who, don't fear, don't even fear death. Don't even fear those who can kill you. He goes on to say, not one bird falls to the ground apart from your father, and he knows the number of hairs on your head. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Fifth reason why we should rejoice in this. <coughs> it gives us incredible steadiness in the midst of chaos. And I, I think this is, um, well, maybe Peter w- wouldn't put it exactly this way. Maybe you wouldn't either. But I think this is what Peter's specifically getting at with his, those who hear, heard this for the first time. God's purposes will succeed. 
No matter what it looks like, God's purposes will succeed. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So as as believers, even in our own nation, become more and more embattled, and I'm talking about just in general, Christians are brothers and sisters from coast to coast, across town, as we become more and more embattled in a chaotic culture, we can have confidence that Christ's purposes will not be thwarted, period. They will succeed, period. And so we don't need to be tossed around with this news or that news or this law that's passed or this event that's happening or whatever it may be. Number six, the sixth reason why this truth should cause you to rejoice is I think it's meant to give, give you and I amazement at our own salvation. This is probably similar to joy in God's grace, but amazement at your own salvation. Charles Spurgeon, when he recalled his own salvation and how he came to faith in Christ, he remembered the day when he trusted in Jesus. And he said he was in a church that he didn't normally go to, but he couldn't make it to his normal church. So he went to a church closer to his home. And he heard this preacher. He said the preacher wasn't particularly engaging. But he said something. He said, look to him. And, and just very simply preach the gospel. And Spurgeon said, I did. And he was recalling that day. And he said, but why did I go to that church? Well, it was because there was inclement weather. Well, why... Why was I even going to go to church that day? I don't go that often. Well, I did because I was reading my Bible the night before. Why was I reading my Bible? Because I heard a hymn earlier in the day. And why, why did I hear that hymn? Because I was at so-and-so's house and they were, you know, whatever. And he said, I realized behind all of it was God. Amen. Behind it all was God. When you think of your salvation and your story of coming to faith, and where you're at now, and what God has brought you through. Do you see God behind it all? Let's be people that do. And go back to the, just the, the wonder and amazement. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know the darkness I've been in, and I did not pull myself out. I didn't pull myself up by my bootstraps and find a way to climb out of that pit. Finally, this is, a, this is a truth to be rejoiced in, not a bitter pill. Last reason is this is meant to give you and I hope that God can change the most hardened person in the world. Perhaps you know someone. Perhaps you are someone. You're like, perhaps you know someone though and you're like, I would have never dreamed they would have trusted in Christ. Evan's giggling. He's that guy. No? Okay. Uh, John Bunyan, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. Awesome book. He, he wrote another book. I have not read it yet, but I, but I want to. Um, I've always been drawn just the, 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 the title of the book. And it's Grace Abounding 
for the chief of sinners. Who's that person in your mind right now? They seem so far from Christ. If it was just up to them to change their own mind and their own heart, it wouldn't give you much hope. Or if it was up to them and then you coming up with, you know, coming up with some better arguments to talk to them, it might seem like a daunting thing. But what about a God who could change in a moment the most hardened sinner and bring them to their knees to see Christ as a wonderful Savior. That's meant to give us hope. I think of the, think of the Apostle Paul um, on the road to Damascus, right? <laughs> the Holy Spirit didn't ask if he could come in. Didn't ask. Paul got knocked off his horse. I think that's where, you know, get off your high horse. That's probably where that statement came from. Paul got knocked off his high horse, blinded, and encountered Jesus. It was a sovereign work of God. So rejoice in God's mercy. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. May it be so for each one of us. And I just would say one more thing. Don't stumble over Christ, the cornerstone. Don't stumble over him. Rather, rest on him as a solid rock. And if someone is here wondering, with what you're saying, how, how would I know if I am a Christian? It's... It's by that. Do you stumble over Jesus? Or do you rest on him? Are you offended at Jesus? Or are you drawn to him? Don't stumble over him. Come to Christ. Rest on his finished work. The finished work of, his, of the cross and his resurrection. By which, as Peter says, the honor is for you who believe eternal honor and glory and praise in his presence forever. Let's pray. Father, I worship you. God, I have sought to be truthful in what your word says here and be clear. God, I pray that you take it and make it live in us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who, that this truth would, the last thing it would do is make us proud. It would make us the most humble, reverent, joyful, rejoicing, amazed people at your grace and your mercy. For once we were not a people, but now we are your people, God. Once we had not received mercy, but God, now we have received mercy. And so God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks, God. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.